and welcome to the dividing line. It is a, um, I think it's a Tuesday, uh, at least most of the day it is today. And uh, I, I got to start off with this because, uh, you know, it's fresh on your mind as you're walking in. I, uh, there's a school nearby and uh, it is uh, open for business. I suppose that's one thing. But I, um, I looked out on the playground at these children in the heat. It's still very hot here in Phoenix. I actually see the possibility of some um, uh, relief in sight uh, next week. I saw the prediction of one day at 102 for the high and 80 for the low, which for us would be almost Coogee weather uh, after the rest of the uh, summer we've had. Um, even Rich, I think, would, would be up for that after the summer we've had. But anyway, it's hot outside. It's uh, higher humidity than we are accustomed to. And all these kids are wearing masks. And if you know anything about biology, virology, medical studies, kids playing outside... Uh, with the wind blowing, is the best place in the world for them to be. And the idea of forcing them to wear masks is, well, even the CDC just admitted last week, they have absolutely no positive evidence that masks have any any uh, uh, assisting help in stopping the spread of COVID at all. And yet, uh, I see a... Uh, article from Friday from down in Australia. Australia. Oh my goodness. You guys down there. What is going on? Uh, Some reason I thought there was something, you know, that it was sort of like the United States as far as some levels of freedom and liberty and things like that, but guess not. Australia to deploy drones to photograph unmasked faces. And drivers that are too far from home. So they're going to they're gonna send the drones out and take pictures of you if you're not wearing your face mask. And the next thing you know, stormtrooper is going to drop out of helicopters and kneel on your neck and force a mask onto you. And they'll probably use new attachments that I bet you I bet you someone's coming up with a face mask right now. Uh, that's similar to those ankle bracelet things that if you take it off, you know, they, they know and maybe it'll shock you or zap you with some kind of and maybe it'll just immunize you again with totally unproven, uh, no long term tested immunizations. Maybe that's what it'll do. I don't know. It's every dystopian movie that we've I mean, put Tom Cruise uh, together with um, the guy and I am legend and uh Put them all, just squish them all together, and that's Australia, and it's it's coming to us too. It's um, absolutely astonishing. To, so sad to look out there and see these young people who ha- are not affected by COVID nineteen at all. There, there's not a kid out there, and they're all masked up. We've the the it's it ha- obviously has nothing to do with the virus anymore. Has nothing at all to do with the virus anymore. This is completely um, the government saying we like power and we're going to use it. And the next thing will be right now. I mean, again, you all were doing the tinfoil hat thing. Boy, I wish you just go back to theology. Back in March, April, I started going, you know, once they 
In fact, I, I actually did a screen capture. Well, no, it was a screen capture. You can't do that. I used, I had to use my phone because you know, if you have, if you use the, uh, iMovie, not iMovie, but, uh, Apple stuff, you can't do a screen capture of a scene. It just, it's just black. So you, uh, you have to use your phone. And so I did a phone thing of that guy, that creature that got the disease that was due to genetically manipulated immunizations, which is exactly what we're doing right now, at the end of I Am Legend, screaming at Will Smith. You know, Will Smith. And I said, so who's going to be really excited about the super fast-tested, no long-term safety-tested immunizations that will be forced on us? And people are like, I just can't believe how stupid you are. And I've seen three uh, stories over the past two days of government officials in multiple nations talking about how they will absolutely demand that anyone who's going to travel, any, any kid that goes to school, if you're going to, if you're going to walk into a grocery store, you have to have your immunization. You're all going to, you're all going to have to have your immunization cards, your little proof thing. And of course, cards can be faked. So why not just chip you? That's what we do with our dogs. Right. And why not? And, and going cashless all over the place. Man, uh, Hal Lindsey missed it by about uh, 30 years. He, he would, is he still around? Because I, mean, I, I think he might still be around, but I, I don't know. But he, if, if you wanted to come up with that kind of stuff and you wanted to somehow tie that in, I, I don't think that's where it ties in, but there's absolutely zero question that the Chinese are already doing this. This is this the the CCP is sitting back just laughing their heads off, going, man, we had no idea these people would roll over so easily. One little panic, and they're yeah, no, no, I don't think you even put six 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 on the masks to do anything like that. Um, but man, it's just it's just astonishingly fast uh, that this is that this is happening. And some people are saying, well, why wouldn't you be traveling? Aside from the fact that I'm just, I, I have absolutely no interest whatsoever in damaging myself um, in that process. Um, but I don't think I'll be able to. I, there, is someone seriously going to say that, that I'm being crazy to think that there might be travel restrictions upon people who would voluntarily cho- choose not to take a uh, a vaccine that has less than a year's worth of human testing is that let's put it this way which is more dangerous to your health a genetically modified vaccine with less than a year's worth of testing behind it or COVID-19 we know the survival rate is COVID-19 the immunization would be less safe Disprove it. Disprove it. You can't. So you know what you know what Facebook's doing? Uh, did you notice? I, I put I put something on Facebook today, and I replaced all the vowels um, that had anything to do with immunization, anything like that, mask, anything had to, uh, because Facebook is now going to just automatically while you did you catch this? Did, did you see this? While you're writing it, before you post it in the editing stage. They'll nail you. 
You know why? Because the truth isn't on their side. They can't do debate. Truth isn't on their side. So there you go. So it, it, I was just reminded because I'm, I'm, I'm walking up to the building and here are these kids. And they're all masked up. And it's uh, probably, what, 100, 607 about them when I was coming degrees outside. And they're all masked up. And no one's going to talk about people collapsing or anything like that. That's, that doesn't fit the narrative. So it's something else. So, yes, sir. So uh, I just thought I'd mention to folks that um, you may notice that you're seeing the dividing line today at 360p. And we're not entirely sure what's going on because all of our um, speed tests are showing that we're exceeding all of the numbers that we've had all summer long, all last fall or last spring. Everything's all fine here, right? Not so much. We don't know if we're being throttled. We don't know where we're being throttled or whatever. I'm demanding that Cox is sending out a technician supposedly tomorrow or the next day. And I'm also looking to get our sales rep on the phone because we actually pay for a guaranteed rate. And so we don't know what's going on, but the the, the, the tactic from here for a while is going to be live stream at 360p and then turn around and upload the backup file um, afterwards. Uh, even at 360p, we've had a couple of dropouts. Not long. They're quick. But... You know, the numbers I'm looking up over here are actually below what we used to do on dial-up. I'm not kidding. We're streaming at below dial-up, and we're still having problems. And yet all of our other numbers in the speed test show we should be able to be doing 1080p without even a hiccup. Something's going on. Don't know what it is. But we're going to keep trying. And we did test Facebook today, by the way, just in case we you know, lay it on YouTube. Facebook had a similar result. So I don't know what to do with it. But I'm going to keep trying. So just letting folks know. Yeah. I don't know either. I don't know either. Um, mis- mysteries. Mysteries all. Mysteries all. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's get into what we need to be doing here. Um, let's... Let's let's begin with this. Um, I'm not sure why it's doing that, but this is uh, Dr. Eric Mason, uh, and we're going to be looking at just a couple sections of a sermon he preached on Sunday from Luke chapter 19, presenting a biblical case for racial reparations in the United States. I want to emphasize, he didn't say racial reparations in the United States, he said biblical case for reparations. They always just default to that. Uh, Very few of them seem to understand that this concept is almost completely irrelevant outside the borders of the United States of America. And that, in fact, it is destructive outside the borders of the United States of America to be um, presenting this kind of of stuff. But anyway, um, so we're going to be looking at at Luke chapter 19, and but I want you to understand, you know, what's being said here. And so before we actually look at the sermon, in the the period of time after the sermon was posted, there has been a lot of response to it. 
And so I don't know if it was yesterday or today, um, Eric Mason posted some videos in response to the pushback that he's gotten for this particular sermon. And I want you to hear some of the things that he, um, that he had to say. So here's, uh, here's the first. And so what I'm saying is, I just don't, like, the, th- this right here, to me, is the greatest form, I'm going to just say it, demonic blindness, the demonic blindness in, in evangelicalism is, um, is scary. Like, like the, the level of blindness is, um, is, is, is demonic, it's demonic. It's demonic. Um, the Bible says in Isaiah 6, he says, seeing, they don't see. And hearing, they won't hear. Um, Jesus uses, utilizes this. Yes, Jesus protested the temple. Why do we have to even talk about this, Steve? You know what I'm saying? You're right. He protested the tax gatherers by uh, what he did in the temple. It just doesn't, you know, But 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 this is the issue. I have done so. I've done a lot of. I mean, they, what, they, okay. Let me let me just mention something here. A part of the context here, as we're going to be looking at it, is uh, one of the claims uh, that Eric Mason made that is plainly disputable um, is that the plagues of Egypt were protests, and that in Exodus twelve, when the Egyptians gave money to Israel as they left, um, this had something to do with reparations. So the, the, the plagues are protests, and so protests bring about reparations. And so a lot of people have just, as I will point out, will say, huh, that's not what Moses said. <laughs> that's not what Scripture says. The the plagues actually were judgment upon the gods of Egypt and the demonstration of God's power over the false gods of Egypt. They weren't protests. To call them protests and to connect them with the protests taking place, to even call most of what's happening in the United States right now a protest, they're, they're not. They're riots. They're just uh, they're, they're lawless criminals. They're, they're literally enemy combatants seeking to destroy the, the fabric of the United States of America. They're not, they're not protesting anything. Um, the, the people that are trying to burn down police stations and burn down businesses and the, the people I saw a couple nights ago that in the middle of the night are going through uh, uh, quiet neighborhoods, uh, dropping the F-bomb every three seconds. All of these people couldn't. Uh, I haven't seen a protester yet that could get through two sentences not dropping an F-bomb. I, I haven't. That, 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 that These are the most filthy mouthed people I've ever seen in my life. Um, but to try to connect the plagues of Egypt with modern U.S. protesting, that, that's what a lot of people are like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. That, that you are stretching things so far here. And so that's what he's pushing back against. And he's saying this is demonic blindness. If you don't, if you don't see... The protest point. This is demonic blindness. I, I, just so you, just so you know, what people are trying to do, and I had to just respond to that one because I don't usually even respond to all this stuff. 
But what they're trying to do is find any type of any loophole they can to shut down the 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 the, the um the challenges. Like I, like I'm like like I, I I really I think in the last 24 hours I really literally came to the conclusion that there is a demonic haze over Western Christianity. Um, like I, 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 I believe that the spirit of the enemy has really darkened the understanding of I'm, I'm just really like blown away like, like some of the ways in which you can just clearly <laughs> that's right Mary the donkey protested the Balaam and so what I'm saying okay, is okay so uh so there there was that one and then um here here is a continuation of that and I don't know why these are all playing like this I they're I'm having to play these straight off of uh cuz I d- don't have the link here at the office that I use at home to grab social media video but uh th- this continues here so all I'm all, so so what are we saying are we saying Biblical protest is an application. Every time a prophet communicated, it's a statement of, of, of disapproval. A protest. At, at most of the Bible is a statement of protest. When, when Gen, In Genesis chapter 1, when it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, in Mesopotamian culture, that was a statement of protest towards the sons of God based on Deuteronomy uh, 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 32, 8, 9 to proclaim against the fallen sons of God who had gone against God and all of those Mesopotamian uh, 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 um, um, Mesopotamian gods and, and basically said no God created the heavens and the earth and when we so, so all of divine truth all proclamation of divine truth all apologetics is a protest a protest against error um, is that a useful category? D- does that clarify something? D- does that actually allow for a, a connection to people uh, rioting and burning and looting? I, I can't. I can't see how you can make that connection. But but all the Bible, all prophetic prophetic utterances are protest. Is is what we just uh, what we just heard here, and and then a number of other people had um, yeah. There's there's a yeah. Let my people go. I'll, I'll there's I guess there's a lot of stuff here on the protest thing, but uh, I'm trying to find. There it is. There's the one I want. Um, so then other people challenged him on on these issues and other claims that he makes in the course of the sermon and uh you got you got this part it's been a barrage of crazy things that i've been getting uh from some people and one of the things i want to address is exegesis let me just explain something let me just just explain something to y'all okay and particularly the white guys who've been hitting me up and some few black guys who hit who hit me up on I, i think they have some good questions i think that um the issue is I'm trained in exegesis. So when you say I'm saying something out of context, um, a lot of times, um, 
you know, when people, let, let's, let's explain. I teach, I taught hermeneutics classes in school. And so this is, this is the, um, uh, beyond let people know how to share it on Instagram, wherever. Um, and so when we talk about exegesis and let's talk about the rule of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is this, it, it, it means this, it says, uh, interpretation one applications, many. In other words, in the immediate context of, in the passage that I'm talking about is Exodus chapter 12, verse 35. Um, yeah, 35 and 36. And it says, the Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items uh, 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 and for clothing. Uh-uh. Uh, oh, yeah, you can bring it out. Uh, and the Lord gave people such favor the people such favor with the Egyptians that uh, the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested in this uh, way they plundered the Egyptians and so one of the things that people were pushing back against um, one of the things that they were pushing back against is me saying that this is reparations or saying that um, the plagues were the main thing was a protest because John MacArthur preached a message saying that there are no protests in the Bible. And and I'm like, well, I don't have another device I can... Manny! Okay, and then he just yells for his phone for a while. Um, but here you have the idea, well, look, I'm, I'm training an exegesis, and um, so in hermeneutics you have one uh, interpretation, many applications, uh, which there's, there's elements of truth to this. The, the question is, are they valid applications and did you start by pro by providing a meaningful um understanding of what the original context was because that's going to determine whether there is a valid application being made beyond that point um so obviously um eric mason has uh, continued to uh, bring out uh, and to respond to things that were said let's um uh, Let's look at Luke chapter 19. It's a short story. It's a story we all know. If you grew up in the church like, uh, like I did, uh, then you uh, certainly have uh, heard the story. I'm so old that this was one of the first flanograph stories. Flanograph. That, that, for those who have no earthly idea, uh, you used to take a, a piece of flannel and you would have these paper cutouts. And I, I don't know if there was something on the back of the little paper cutouts of people and donkeys and horses and stuff, but it would stick to the flannel. And so as the Sunday school teacher would tell the story, you, you'd put these, so here's, here's Jesus and here's Jericho and, and um, here's a sycamore tree and here's little short Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus can't see Jesus. And so Zacchaeus goes up in the tree and yeah, you know, that, that was, that's, that was flannel graph. Uh, that's how you did stuff in the, well, mid-1960s when you did uh, Sunday school. And uh, so, anyway, uh, I, I remember very, very, very clearly learning the story of uh, Zacchaeus and that he was short and he wanted to see Jesus. And and uh, when he saw Jesus, Jesus said, come down, Zacchaeus, uh, today I'm going to be 
eat, I must eat in your house. And as they're going, Zacchaeus uh, says he'll give half of what he has to the poor. And if he has defrauded anyone, he'll give four times what he has defrauded them of. And, and Jesus said, today salvation has come uh, to this one who is a member of the house of Israel. And so this was the, this was the story. Everybody knows it really well. But let's think about uh, it in context. Um, obviously, there's the historical background that there were two different Jerichos, the ancient Jericho and the rebuilt later Jericho, and that's relevant to where certain people were sitting and various uh, um, synoptic stories. We won't get into that right now. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Um, chief tax, tax collector is a very rare form. Um, right here, uh, uh, Architellones, uh, very rare, but what it would emphasize is that he was probably a, a tax collector over other tax collectors, which might have something to do with what he says later on, if I have defrauded someone, in other words, he had people working for him. So, uh, the people under him were probably making a little bit on the side too. That's maybe where that is relevant. Um, and uh, it says he was Plusios. He was rich. Uh, he was a, a wealthy man. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because the crowd, for he was small in stature. And uh, by the way, you, you might like that. Uh, uh, Micros, micro. <laughs> yeah, there's, he was a, he was a, um, in stature, Macross Ain. He was he was he was a short guy. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And so I, I'm not sure why this was such a popular story with kids, but you just sort of liked Zacchaeus because you know maybe you were one of the last kids picked for dodgeball, and and uh, we still had dodgeball back then. We had not learned that it was bullying back then. Uh, a lot of people go, I explained you. Um, and so you, you see Zacchaeus getting up in the tree and, and so on and so forth. And then when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. And of course, you know, the, the, the question is, um, did Jesus utilize supernatural knowledge of Zacchaeus at this point? Was it, did he know who this guy was from other instances and things like that. I, you know, the, the text doesn't tell us. I'm adjusting the temperature in the uh, studio. I forgot to do that. Sorry about that. I'm not answering the wife's text because she can, she'll, it's okay. She can wait till I get done. Um, anyway, um, but personally, Jesus stops. He knows who Zacchaeus is. And he does, by, by calling him out by name, in the midst of the people who have had to pay taxes to him, they all know who he is, and they all know that he is rich because he has taken from them, and that in the name of government, which would include the Roman government, but also the government of Herod and, and, and things like that. By saying this out loud, this creates verses 6 and 7. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly, uh, received him rejoicing. When they saw it, 
they all began to grumble. There is that wonderful Greek term, gongusmu, once again. Um, uh, dia gonguzon. Uh, it's a, just a great word. Grumble. It sounds like grumbling. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a hamartolo. Hamartolo Andri, a sinner. So a, a publicly known, this is what you would call a prostitute, but it's also what you would call a tax collector, a trader, a trader to your people. That's, it, is, it is a position of being one who would not be welcome in the community because of your lifestyle, what you do. And so the people are glad to have Jesus in their midst until he does this. And he goes with the wrong guy. So that's probably how why it's set up that Zacchaeus, first of all, is visible to everybody. And then his name is known to everybody. And then Jesus uses his name so that the application can be made. So Zacchaeus stopped, evidently, as they are going to his house. And said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions, my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. So the Mosaic Law, of course, provided for the payment of restitution. So there's two things here. First, out of, the, out of the, a changed heart, he says, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. That was not what was demanded. But I think it's appropriate for us to, to ask the question, if there, Luke records for us that they are gungusmooing, <laughs> they are grumbling as they're going. It says Zacchaeus is short, not that he's deaf. So you, you don't think he can't hear the whispers and the conversations and why is he going there and he's a sinner. Maybe somebody even said that out loud. And so Zacchaeus stops and says, half my position, my possessions, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything. Um, and so that term is a, is a technical term. Um, that is used in law of accusing, falsely, slandering, misrepresenting, or in financial context, it can simply be defrauding, which obviously as a chief tax collector, then that's where that comes in. I'll give back four times as much. So this, this is in line with the Mosaic standards of personal restitution in interpersonal relationships. Um, so Jesus's response, again, this would seem to be in front of the crowd because Zacchaeus has stopped. Jesus has stopped. The crowd that was grumbling is probably still standing nearby. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. The way that the, the fact that he, that Jesus says he too he, he, it says he said to him, 
But notice he refers to him in the third person. He, too, is a son of Abraham. So the words are meant to be heard from others. In other words, Jesus is bringing restoration to Zacchaeus' relationship to the community. And he's saying salvation has come to this house, a house that the community did not think would be able to have salvation. The, the, the barriers to grace in the days of Jesus were great, and it's, it's not difficult for us to recognize what they were. The scribes and Pharisees looked down at everybody else because they did not keep the, the law to the level that they did. And we know from their writings uh, that they, they talked about the Am Ha'aretz, the people of the land, as the non-law keepers. And they were second-class citizens. And everybody knew that that's how they were viewed by their religious leaders as second-class citizens. But even they then, as a group, together with the scribes and Pharisees, would look at these people and would put them out. Now, of course, if they were unrepentant, if you're talking about a unrepentant prostitute, an unrepentant thieving tax collector, um, that was appropriate. But it came to the point where the idea was salvation couldn't come to anyone's house who was like that. Once they're out, they're out, they stay out. Repentance isn't a possibility. And Jesus says, in front of everybody, using the third person, today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. There is a clear emphasis on restoration, which then leads to one of the more important texts. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And what was lost? Zacchaeus. If you had asked the crowd as Jesus was entering into Jericho to identify the lost, I'm not sure they would have been thinking of Zacchaeus. And once they see what the lost looks like, they're not really happy with what the lost looks like. In other words, they want to, li- they want to limit the ministry of the Messiah to the acceptable realms of their society. And this is one of the many places where Jesus is prying open that door so that they can come to recognize what he's eventually going to make very clear. The gospel's for all people. It's for Jews and Gentiles together. That's, that's very, very important. So then he tells a parable after this, the parable uh, about the uh, ten slaves and uh, the monies and faithfulness and, and, and all the things that, that come after that. So what is So there is a financial aspect in... Luke 19, the beginning, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Um, He speaks of giving of his substance. He speaks of making restitution in regards to his own personal sin of defrauding people. Um, And then the next parable is specifically speaking to faithfulness and what God gives to a person. But the point of Zacchaeus is not reparations. The point is not an application that would be, you know, uh, the Romans 
Now let, let's go back. Let's uh, the Greeks owed the people of Israel reparations for what happened when Alexander came into Palestine and the 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 issues that took place then. The, the Greeks owe reparation, reparations. The Romans wrote, uh, owe reparations as well, obviously. Um, and then you start going back to the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the uh, certainly the Assyrians. Oh, goodness. Um, you could make the case for reparations from every foreign army that has marched through the highway that is Israel, because that's, that's what Israel is. It's a highway between North Africa and the rest of the world. And lots of invading armies have marched up and down past the Sea of Galilee and through the various plains and, and everything else over the years. And if you want to talk about reparations, if you want to talk about that, if you want to talk about the, the abuse of the of the people and the, the slavery that they experienced in Egypt, uh, this would be the time to be talking about it, but there's nothing about that because that's not what Luke chapter 19 is about. Luke chapter, look, when a, this is called a pericope, okay? A pericope. The pericope of Zacchaeus ends with the specific statement, and this is, it all builds up to this. It builds up the statement, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is the one who finds Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is just trying to get a glimpse of the wonder worker. He's not, he's not seeking Jesus in some sense of spiritual lostness. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If your interpretation of a text doesn't take you to the text's own conclusion, you've probably missed the meaning of the text. Or what you're doing, and this is what Eric Mason is doing, there is nothing in Scripture that would substantiate the idea that based on categories of ethnicity, I am to take anything that I hope to be able to give to my children or my grandchildren upon my passing from this world and give it to Eric Mason's children. There's nothing in the scripture that says that should be the case on the basis of ethnicity. The reality is my ancestors were poor. I can prove that. My ancestors, uh, I'm sure I had sharecroppers amongst them. Most of us did during the 20s and 30s. Most of us, our great-great-grandparents were dirt poor. Most of us, our, our, our ancestors were not living high on the hog in New York City. Not so much of the classical liberals in New York, but that's a different issue. Um, so the idea that my great-great-grandfather, who came from Scotland, uh, and who... Probably was dirt poor there, too, because once got over here, he was dirt poor as well. Somehow that his descendants owe something based upon their ethnicity to somebody else is not a biblical concept. We, see, we have no evidence whatsoever that the early church operated on the basis of such a concept. There is nothing in the New Testament that tells us that once people started getting saved— 
and you started getting people in the church who had past issues with their ancestors versus somebody else's ancestors, uh, that to be part of the fellowship of the church meant that you had to engage in this process of reparations. There's, there's nothing. In fact, it's just the opposite. The, the New Testament evidence is that all of that stuff is wiped out. All of this stuff is identity Christianity. It is your identity is first and foremost based upon your ethnicity. And all through uh, Brother Mason's sermon, he used the plural pronoun we. So he identifies as a slave. He identifies as one who has been defrauded by this nation. And so the ethnic identity issue, first and foremost, it's, it, it is what made the sermon what it was. It's not a New Testament concept. It is opposed to the unity that is found in the church. And that unity comes from the fact that we are in Christ and that it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. You stand before God in the exact same basis as anybody else. You approach the Lord's Supper in the exact same way as anybody else. You have the same righteousness. This destroys all that stuff. Social justicians and the woke church uh, reestablishes all those things. It rebuilds the barriers that the gospel actually takes down. So what do we do then with um, the sermon itself? Well, let's... um, Let's take a look at that, and um, here it is, and I think I can, yeah, and I'm using this, uh, again, Note Studio. It's a, it's a, a really, really, really appreciate this program, uh, whoever it is that put this together, uh, because I have just a few notes here. All I've got to do is click on them, and it goes right to that spot, and it's, uh, it's great. I believe, and the nice thing was, I, and I did this at home. Saves a Dropbox and it works here. That's, believe me, it, it, for, I do not have people who do this for me. <laughs> when, you've, when you've got video queued up, I did, I did all that. I don't have people who do that for me and I walk in and they hand me a cue sheet and stuff like that. that there are some people who do that. I could name names, but um, that ain't me. So it's pretty neat when you find stuff. And I'll let, I'll let other people know. Because lots, lots of people are doing stuff online these days. Um, I'll have some more to talk about that at another point. But um, So I want you to hear some of the things that are said. And I want to respond to some of the things that are said uh, from the sermon. This was from Sunday morning. I found this interesting. And it would help if I had play going. If I'm honest about, you know, reparations over the years, I haven't thought a lot about it um, as much as I would have liked to as one of the outworkings of what it looks like to kind of fix things and deal with some of the racial tensions in our country. Um, You know, I, I started thinking about it a few years back when I was asked to speak on it. I've heard people talking about reparations. Um, I've even talked a little bit about reparations, but hadn't thought deeply about it. Biblical. I, I've even had people tell me reparations isn't a gospel principle to, to 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 claim that somebody owes you something because of their sin against you. Forgiveness is enough. 
Um, but the question, the, the question is, um, uh, um, um, it, it, it. now let me just mention something. Do you see how you define that? Be, that that some would owe you something because of their sins against you. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what reparations is. That's not what the trillions of dollars that everyone says, uh, you know, uh, various groups have come out and said, well, if it was to be really just, then you, we'd have to give $55 million to every black person in America today and and, and so on and so forth. That That's that's not what he just said. Oh, That's not about, I, I have not sinned against Eric Mason. I do not owe Eric Mason any money. Okay, my my children do not. My children's children do not, and his children do not owe me anything either. In fact, from a Christian perspective, the only thing we owe each other is to love each other, and to not put um, put each other under undue burdens. But it is interesting that even he said this is, you know, if you define it that way, it's on a personal one to one level, not something about something that happened that may or may not have involved your ancestors a century and a half ago. That's, that, that's what the cultural definition is now. Um, and when he gets to it, I'm not going to take time to go into it, but he was basically saying that all black Christians, uh, that, that black Christian colleges should be funded for free for 200 years. That all black Christians who want to get a Christian education, everybody else should pay for their education for 200 years. That, those were some of the things that he said. Um, black churches funded, we all get, all, all the rest of us get to fund their churches. This creates such an incredible division. It's, it's astonishing when you really think about what it actually means and what, how, how it would be played out. But everything we're hearing today when you think about it, how it would actually be done. Um, I, I mean, literally, it's astonishing that we are seeing articles being published about major uh, institutions resegregating, this time voluntarily. Resegregating, dividing along ethnic lines, and not just black-white. Uh, there is this really strange underlying black asian uh division and hispanic for that matter it is interesting to note i suppose if your uh, economic status is supposed to mean something whites don't make the most money they don't Uh, asians do by a long shot it's primarily due to discipline it's a matter of discipline it's if you're willing to put off Fulfillment of your desires and wants, you can make a lot of money in this world. You really can. And so there are some people who are raised in a culture, often very respectful culture, um, that are willing to do with a lot less and hence to have more at a later point in time. Uh, but, you know, when I hear that, that Asians make more than whites, nothing, that just makes me happy. It does, there's nothing in me that goes, I need some of their money. They must be putting me down. Because I have no victim 
The only victim mentality I have right now is when I recognize that if you still believe in the principles that this nation was founded upon, you're going to be a victim. Uh, Because there are people in power now that are are doing things. That's that's another another issue. It just never crosses my mind to be jealous of or consider myself to be being put down because I realize it's not a zero-sum game. Um, Economic growth is something that results from people working together. It's not that there's just one pie and you just keep getting a smaller amount if somebody gets a bigger amount. That's just not true. That's not how it works. So anyway, I, I just thought it was interesting that he said that. That's true. Does the gospel work that way? And we're going to see how that works. Is our forgiveness enough in, in relation to our relationship with God? Does, does God call, call for any type of uh, anything uh, that, that, that not is a requirement for salvation, but an outworking of salvation? Now, okay, that's an important distinction requirement for salvation versus an outworking of salvation. Okay. I've, I was given a book recently when I was in Arkansas, um, the root and the fruit, I think, um, I think it was Beaky and Lawson on Paul and James too. I still think one of the most important chapters I've ever written is my chapter on James two and Paul in the God who justifies, which is a fairly lengthy chapter, too. I'm, I'm not sure if it was typeset in the same way, if it wouldn't be as long as the, the, the booklet I was referring to. Um, but, okay, I, I get that part, but I'm really concerned where Eric Mason goes to some of the comments he makes here. But one of the things that we want to do and that we want to begin to dig into today is this idea of a case for reparations. If you see me peek over to the side, I'm just, um, I'm just looking and just seeing what's going on, because, you know, we, we out here. We out here. And so, yeah. And might I point out that being out there, who are you afraid of? Properly. I mean, security is important. I'm not downplaying that for a second. But could I, but I could I just point something out to you that every single number that is reported by anybody that's indisputed is you're probably not afraid of white cops. That, that's not who you have to be worried about. What? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, that's yeah, that's that's where they are. That's that. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, um, when you look at um, when you look at um, history, you'll hear people like Dick Gregory and others, and particularly the conscious community, um, tell them I'm talking about reparations for black people. Yeah, and so. Um, Did you catch that? So obviously, someone's like, tell them. You know, what's he, what's he talking about? Talking about reparations for black people. Well, that'll that'll keep you safe. That'll keep you safe. I, but the point was, what did he start off by saying? I haven't really thought much about this. It's sort of a new thing to me. Well, okay, all right. Uh, so we we move forward uh, to this section here. Correcting the effects of sin on others is a strong fruit of conversion. Well, you see, we're here in this text, and this text has kind of been that mentioning passage, if you will, uh, uh, um, that, that's usually mentioned in relation to reparations. We'll, we'll, we'll peruse the, the exegetical pantheon, as I told you, and begin to work through redemptive historical history and see if the principle that we see in this text is something that scoured the scriptures. And so when you look in verse 19, it says he entered Jericho, talking about Jesus. It's interesting that he would enter Jericho. This Jericho is not... Okay, but notice, initiating correcting the effects of sin on others is a strong fruit of conversion. 
So he's going to make the argument, the reparations, that if, well, you heard what he said in the, the, after the sermon the next day. This demonic darkness of anyone who would be questioning in the evangelical world what he was saying in this sermon. It's, it's demonic darkness to not see that, that the plagues were protests and, and things like that. By the way, I personally take it for what it's worth, but I see, it seems to me like he's moved a good bit away from where he was even when he wrote uh, the book. Even in, the, in just over the past, it seems like everyone, it, the, the explosion is just ongoing and, and people are getting farther and farther and farther away. And again, I say this partly in the context of the fact that, you know, 12 years ago, most of us were speaking at the same conferences. We were sharing dinners together, and this was not being discussed by anybody within the Reformed world. This is the... And, and so... Go back 12 years, listen to the conferences we were all speaking at, listen to what we were talking about, listen to how we were talking about it. Who's changed? Who's changed? Uh, that's something that's, that's important. Now, this, this was a section that a lot of people focused upon right here. Repentance. And so what we see here is a fruit of experiencing God is repentance. And look what his repentance does. He said, I'll give it to the poor. But not only that, this is not just general almsgiving. That's almsgiving because that was general almsgiving poor. But then he goes beyond just almsgiving or, or offering, if you will, uh, for kingdom work. And he said uh, for, uh, to them, to the poor. And then he says, and if I have extorted anything from anyone i'll pay it back four times as much this is interesting it's interesting now because now he didn't have to even say this he could have just had his sins forgiven and him to be able to allow his justification by faith through christ alone to be enough for him to move on and people believe he was different now that this is this concerned me because luke's not talking here about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's that that, that this isn't Romans three and four. Um, that that's not what the, the story is specifically talking about. Again, Zacchaeus isn't even the center of the story about what is being talked about by Luke. That's obvious. It's the Son of Man coming to seek and save that which was lost. Um, but what you're hearing here is, well, he could have, and then you throw out justification by faith. But he did more than that. So justification by faith isn't enough. It might be enough to save you, but if you're really, really saved, then you're going to do this reparations thing. This is what really concerns me in what is being said, uh, because there are others that are significantly less restrained than Eric Mason in how they're presenting uh, these particular things. Uh, A couple more here. Uh, Here's the the part that we've already heard about. Exodus 12.35, it says, the Israelites, this is one of my favorite passages on restitution right here. I love this joint right here. It says, the Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver. So they said, hey, so is it wrong to ask for reparations? I heard a preacher last week say, you shouldn't be asking for nothing. You should just stay in your state that you're in. You shouldn't do it. But, but they said, Moses told them, y'all go ask them for some money. Go ask. I ain't prosperity gospel. But 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 uh, but I do believe. But that doesn't take money out the Bible. It's in there. Amen. Amen. He says, "Go ask for silver and gold items and for clothing." Hallelujah. He want them to look good too. Look at that. They got clothing, gear, outfits. 
You know what I'm saying? Fabrics and things, right? And it says, and the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. Now, I want to give you, the, I want to let you, I'm going to give you something, this for free. Okay, hold on. But in this way, they plundered the Egyptians. This wasn't reparations. This is plundering. Okay, the, the, Yahweh, look, Egypt has just been through the plagues, okay? Locusts, frogs, darkness, and now all the firstborn are dead, okay? It's almost been 2020. <laughs> this, is, this is Egypt's 2020, okay? Um, they've had boils on their bodies, the the water has been turned to blood. Okay, it's not been a good time. And so they're happy to see Israel go. Yes, the, the Israelite workers have helped to build stuff, but it's been primarily for the pharaohs and stuff, bricks for the cities and the, the pyramids and, 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 and things like that. Sure, the average Egyptian has benefited from their labor, but there's nothing about that here. It says, and Yahweh gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. What they requested. This isn't reparations. This is plundering. A supernatural plundering. I mean, it's just for God to do this. He's but if you don't see that all of this, everything that happened with Egypt and the plagues, we're going to look at this again, just a second. But, because he's about to say this, the plagues were the judgment of God upon an evil, idolatrous nation. That, this is about God. This is what happens when you don't have a... You don't, you don't have a God-centered theology. You got a man-centered theology. You're, you're looking at all the wrong stuff. This is so they plundered the Egyptians. They plundered the Egyptians. Some people don't believe Christians should protest. Do you know that this reparations was prayed because God initiated Moses and the Israelites to protest Pharaoh and Egypt? How did they protest? Okay, let, let me just just just. They were not protesting Pharaoh. They were not protesting Egypt. They weren't doing anything. The plagues were divine acts. What What did Israel do? Are you, are you seriously saying that Israel was carrying signs outside of Pharaoh's palace? Justice from Pharaoh. We want good wages for our brick making, or we'll throw our bricks through your windows. What? I, I'm sorry, but but this is laughable. It, it's just laughable. It, it's just it's just where do you get this? Think about what the plagues were. The, the the plagues. When you think about the gods of Egypt, they had gods of the waters, and they had gods of the uh, the Nile. I mean, the Nile was was and is the lifeblood of Egypt, and so its flooding was how Egypt survived. You you stop the flooding, you destroy the nation. And that ended up happening with the you know the, the White Nile and the, the stuff that's taken place. It's it's fascinating down through history. Anyway, 
But their gods, which the people of Israel had been seeing the Egyptians worship for almost four centuries, their gods were the gods of the dead. They were the gods of animals and crops and sun and moon and stars. Think about what the plagues were, the darkness. Well, what about the, what about the, the sun god? What about the moon god? Powerless. Yahweh can, can, can make everything completely dark. Those gods are powerless against Yahweh. The gods of the rivers, turn them into blood. Powerless against Yahweh. The, the gods of the crops. Look at the locusts coming. Oh, my. The plagues were demonstrations of the power of God. And you know how I know this? And this is not even a question because it's exactly what the Bible says. Remember what Paul quoted in Romans chapter 9 about Pharaoh? I've raised you up for this very purpose that in you my name might be made known throughout the whole earth. That's not a protest. That's a demonstration of the glory of God and the power of God against idolatry. That's what happened in the plagues. That's why they're important. That's why the Exodus is important. At the very founding of the nation of Israel, God is saying to his people, the thing that's going to get you is idolatry. The Asherah, the Asherim, the high places, the Baals, the syncretism that you're going to fall into because you're going to forget that there's only one God and he rules over all things. And that's exactly what they did. That's exactly what happened. That's what it was all about. These weren't protests. I'm sorry, but if you can connect God's demonstration of his own glory, what, uh, 3,400 years ago, with American riots in the streets, you're stretching just a little bit. Just a little bit. You're, well, you're abusing the scriptures. That's what you're doing. But, but you're stretching just a little bit. <clears throat> Every, the ten plagues was protest. When Moses went there and said, let my people go, that was the sign. That was the protesting sign. And so with that in mind, that's beautiful to me that we see that this reparations here in this passage is a, is a direct result, listen, of protest, of a vehement protest where God used the protest and God anointed the protest to break down the leadership, to open their hearts, to do what he called them to do because he turned the hearts of the king wherever he wants to. That's not what it says. That, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's not what the text says. He did not use protest he used plagues they were divine plagues israel was just sitting over there in goshen going wow <laughs> they ain't making molotov cocktails they ain't wearing body armor they don't got lasers they don't have flashbangs and face masks they're over there in goshen going wow look at what god is doing for us this is deliverance. Our God is superior to all the gods of the Egyptians. They've been looking down at us forever, and our God has heard our cries. It took 400 years, but our God has heard our cries. Yep. That's what's going on. Don't make that no protest. That is... Oh. 
Ah, uh, I am. Uh, yeah. Okay. One last one, and this is this also got picked up on uh, by by a lot of folks, and it and it needs to be picked up on by uh, a lot of folks. It's 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 important. About this is that Jesus, in verse nine of Luke nineteen, connects Zacchaeus's willingness to pay reparations as a sign that he had been changed by the gospel. How many of you watching under the sound of my voice saying that racism doesn't exist? How many of you under the sound of my voice talking about uh, I don't, I, it wasn't me and I don't need to pay reparations, all of this type of stuff? If, if you're under the sound of my voice and you're resisting restitution for black people because of what's happened into this country, you may want to check your, your, your justification uh, uh, monitor. I know because some of y'all call me a heretic because I deal with racial injustice. Well, I'm still preaching the gospel. Matter of fact, we hit the block out here. We preach the gospel to see people come to spiritual death and spiritual life. So, this, so, however, we believe that the gospel has outworkings that impact the way we relate to one another, God and one another. So there you go. That, that was the part that I think caught most people's attention. And appropriately so, uh, because that was, in essence, sounded like you're saying is, if you don't agree, and notice he uses restitution, reparation, as if they're the same thing. They're not. Not biblically, not legally, not the Mosaic Law. They're not. Um, but he's switching back and forth between them. And if you disagree with where I'm coming from on this, then you might want to che- check your justification monitor. What in the world is that? I don't know. I don't know, but he's just connected that with what was said about Zacchaeus being changed by the gospel. That's dangerous. I'd like to hope the best, but that's dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Now, let me say something more. What was truly troubling about this sermon is that in discussing all of the bad things happening in the black community today, the real reason for why those things are happening was never mentioned. It was never brought up. The blame was placed on the past. The blame was placed all over the place, but not where it needs to be. I don't think the term fatherlessness appeared anywhere. And what struck me was the fact that this sermon was preached on a day when the number one song in all the United States, to my understanding, and certainly in the black community, performed by two black women, is one of the most vile, filthy, pornographic, profane, pieces of filth to ever pollute the airwaves. If you were to bleep it out, if you were to bleep the bleepable part, you just start the beginning and you could just sit with your finger on it. It's that bad. You can go on YouTube and watch the explicit lyrics version, and it's pornography. It's black women seeing the praises of being Street whores. In the most graphic language you'll ever find. And it's the number one song in the black community. You preach a sermon about white people owing your kids money, and you don't even mention that? 
You don't even talk about that? You don't talk about the fact just just last month there's a television program where a black woman, interestingly enough, has a whole bunch of black men in front of her, and she has them stand up and tell how many children they have by how many different women. One young man stands up. He has 28 children by 16 women. The funny thing was, she kept saying, no judgment for me, no judgment for me. There needs to be judgment. There needs to be shame. But there isn't. But, oh, we won't talk about that. No, it's, it's you just give us money. Reparations, that's going to heal everything. I, I don't even know what to say. Um, it's... And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't look. I heard about this song on the news and looked it up. I didn't make it through the video, but it, I I saw, I saw enough to be absolutely stunned. Uh, it, if YouTube allows that kind of thing, then they have absolutely no basis whatsoever for engaging in any of the censorship that they do. None. It is that filthy. It is that reprehensible, disgusting, immoral. And it's the number one song in the land. And if that doesn't tell you why our cities are burning, nothing will. Nothing will. Um, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <sighs> okay, two more things. One... In 2007, I got on Twitter. I don't remember how this happened. Somebody contacted me. Somebody had told me that Lecrae was, had made mention of me in some context, that I had been in some way helpful to Lecrae and his guys in theology, apologetics, stuff like that. And back in that day, it was a common thing for me. I remember, I think I was speaking in Omaha. Was that Omaha, Nebraska? I think it was Omaha, Nebraska. Or somewhere up in that direction. I remember a black couple. They were sitting down on this side and, and during one of the breaks. I think I was talking about intestinal reliability or something. And he was telling me about just how much the ministry had meant to him and how I had helped his faith so much. And he was saying, and there's there's just a lot of black brothers and sisters that just really appreciate your bold stance on the gospel and things like that. And I, I started seeing more and more of that happening. And I was like, man, this is fantastic. And so someone had contacted me and said that maybe the best way I could get hold of Lecrae was on Twitter. So to get hold of Lecrae is why I signed up for Twitter. And I, I think it was 2007. I think I go back and look, I suppose. Uh, okay, 2009. 2009. I, I knew it was before 2010. So it was July of 2009. Uh, if this is still right in telling me when it was, because I joined July of 2009. So July of 2009, um, I get on Twitter, and I do get in touch with Lecrae. And they're at a hotel out in the West Valley. And so I pack up my digital projector and my computer. 
And I go out, and they talk to the manager at the hotel, and we got to use the restaurant while it was closed. And I set up my projector, and I think I did my New Testament reliability thing for them. And then afterwards, we talked um, theology, and the, the thing that really sticks in my mind was Lecrae was saying, you know, so often after a concert, we're talking, to, we're talking to guys, and they've got questions. I get a lot of questions about who Jesus is, about the hypostatic union. How can you be God and man? Could you talk about that? I just thought it was fantastic. We spent hours out there. And I stayed in touch with Tadashi and some of those guys. Uh, and this was 2009. And then over the years, stuff changed. And everybody changes. Um, but most people will make a comment. I mean, I've had, I've had people recently say, you, you've changed so much lately. When I challenge them on it, really is they're the ones that have changed, not me. I'm still, you know, we're, we're looking, uh, right now at setting up debates and things like that. I'm still dealing with the textual issues. I'm still dealing with the sufficiency of scripture. I'm still dealing with all the stuff that I was dealing with. Back then, we're dealing with new things that were not challenges back then. Um, transgenderism was not the challenge in 2009 that it is today, thanks to Obergefell in 2015, of course. Things have changed rapidly, but we've, we're not saying that th- we're, not, we're not the ones that have changed. And so yesterday, I saw a video where Lecrae is being asked about the subject of homosexuality. And I know what Lecrae knew about homosexuality in 2009, and I know how he would have responded in 2009. Um, The question we have to ask is, why have things changed? So here's part of an interview. You know what? You know what? I just realized if we uh, if we play that, they'll ding us. They'll take it down. They'll take this program down. You know it. They'll take it off YouTube. They will. They will. That's that's what's going to happen. So you can go online and watch it. If anything, when you upload the uh, high def, I'd cut even that out. I'd cut just just that little thing right there. I, I would. I know it's an extra couple of minutes, but I'd cut it out because that's what's going to happen. So I'll just have to tell you, you can go online and watch it. It's all over the place. It's on Facebook. It's on Twitter. It's everywhere. I just know what would happen if we played it. That's just. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. If I can find it, I'll, I'll do that. Um, the way I described it on Facebook it's interesting you can link to all that stuff on Facebook and they're not going to take it down, but if you put it on YouTube, you're dead. Um, the way I described it was that this was painful. The, one of the things that, that people had so appreciated, wasn't it the 116, Romans 116, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Wasn't that, wasn't that one of the key issues back then? In fact, wasn't that part of the record label name or something like that? This was a stumbling way around of saying, I don't, I don't have it all figured out. You know, I don't, you know, no one really knows 
And in fact, at one point, the interviewer says, the Bible can be interpreted in a million different ways. No, it cannot. I mean, I, I, when someone says, I want to ask, excuse me, but if you write me an email after you do this interview, asking me for specific information, I write back saying, well, you know, your email could be interpreted a million different ways. Are you going to buy that? No, your email cannot be interpreted in a million different ways. If you write it very poorly, it might be interpreted in, in a couple different ways, but there's no way to interpret it in a million different ways unless it is written so poorly that it can't communicate any truth at all. And that's the assumption behind the question. And so any Christian that just sits there when someone says, well, the Bible can be interpreted in a million different ways and doesn't say, no, that's simply not true. That, that, is, that is an insult and an attack upon the Scripture. But the, the guy said that, and Lecrae just sat there. And there was never, ever, a, there, was, there was such a stumbling, well, you know, I don't want to say this, and I don't want to say that, instead of saying, well, you know, Jesus was very straightforward. There's God created male and female. And marriage, because the question was asked, what if, what if your, one of your sons came to you and said, will you be a part of my gay marriage? And look, folks, if you're not ready to answer that one, you haven't been thinking through the Christian worldview. You really haven't. Because this is, this is straightforward. Jesus blessed the marriage in Cana of Galilee with his presence because he designed it. So for us to come along and say he didn't get it right is a slap in the face of the Savior who gave himself on Calvary's cross and rose again the third day. And if you claim to be his follower and you go ahead and join the group in slapping him, you're not his disciple. You're not his disciple. That's what you're being asked to do. So there isn't any question about the clarity of what Jesus taught about this subject or what Paul taught about this subject or what Moses taught about this subject or anybody else taught about this subject. There is no lack of clarity on this topic at all. In fact, the Bible says, the Bible lists homosexual activity. In fact, using both Malakoi and Arsenokoitai at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 probably refers to both the male and acting female penetrated partner in same-sex activity, says, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But such were some of you, not such are some of you. Now, do I think Lecrae already knew all that? Of course I do. Did he say any of that? He did not. That's why it was painful to watch. Someone who, barely a decade ago, had been emphasizing boldness for the gospel, now stumbling to try to not have to say what he knows the scriptures say, what he knows. It was sad. It was very, very sad. I, I don't think that it is grounds for some of the nastiness I've seen directed toward him. It, it should be sadness. If your heart's not broken about that, first... If your heart's broken about it, then you can point out, hey, this is, this is terrible. This is, this is reason for grieving. But it's also reason to go, Lord, don't let me go there. Don't let me go that direction. Because the pressure is on all of us. Look, there are so many people in this 
uh, uh, you know, there's so many videos on Twitter now that it my eye goes over there, and it's it's another one of those videos of these quote unquote protesters. That's not, not a proper term. Going anarchists, criminals, thugs, going up to people who are sitting in restaurants and stuff like that, trying to get them to be communists uh, and berating them and threatening them if they don't. It's just it's astonishing. Um, a one reason I'm not going to restaurants at all uh that's that really hasn't crossed my mind that's not happening in phoenix that i'm aware of not yet, not yet. give give a time but uh yeah yeah it's true there's no question about the mayor of phoenix would, would like to see that happening but I, I also think that most in a lot of places like arizona arkansas places like that there's the thought in a lot of people's behind a lot of people's mind a lot more of these people are armed. Everybody up in Portland knows nobody up there is armed. So, uh, but that's not the case down here. So, yeah, you got you got lots of concealed carry weapons permits around here. Um, though, when they come in, they're all sitting there doing this number automatically. We wanna we wanna get video of anybody because then we can edit it and make them look like terrible, horrible people. Well, that's what was going on. That's I had to minimize it. So, anyway, um, all right, one last thing here. Uh, on Friday? Thursday, Friday? Thursday. Thursday of last week. Because it was after the dividing line, or I had posted before the dividing line, then after the dividing line, I saw all the comments. Uh, Dr. Timothy Keller uh, from New York had posted a tweet on the subject uh, of John Calvin, quoting from the Institutes. And it was in the context of the social justice movement. And I simply pointed something out that I'm astonished is not just obvious to everybody, but I've become very concerned because I've seen a number of people. I, I, I read a position paper of a church recently, um, and they were doing a lot of quotation from Puritans and people like that, um, and making application to the modern situation that we are in, quoting from people who lived in sacral societies. Now, let me explain what a sacral society is. Sacralism is the union of church and state not necessarily to the point of total coalescence, but you see sacralism in Europe for a thousand years. It starts, the first step is the Constantinian synthesis. When Constantine attends the Council of Nicaea, that is a first step. Now, no one at that time could, could have possibly known where that was going to go. But by 380 with Theodosius, you have, you have the proclamation of Rome as a Christian empire. But even then, that is not going to tell you what you're going to get. You know, a few years later, you have Augustine giving in and allowing for and even arguing for the use of government suppression of the Donatists. 
But even then, he couldn't know that that was actually going to lay the foundation, literally lay the foundation for what we would call the Inquisition. Hundreds of years later. He didn't know that, but it did. It was part of that developmental process uh, over time. And so, by the time of the Reformation... Europe has for many centuries, as long as anyone can remember, and especially because of the development of anachronism during the uh, Middle Ages, where people thought that things had always been this way, and that's why they had paintings of David uh, living in a castle with armor, um, because that's what kings do. Europe had experienced sacralism, and so how did that work out? Well, for example, you have the huge conflict between the papacy, and various kings and emperors in regards to ultimate authority, investiture controversies, and, and all sorts of things like that going on. And so you've, you've got armies invading Italy to take the pope captive, and then you've got the pope having emperors stand outside his door for three days in the snow before forgiving them. Uh, all within the same couple hundred years. And so it's a struggle back and forth. And, and so under a sacral system, for example, heresy was a crime. Heresy was a crime. And so you would be uh, prosecuted by the church and then executed by the state. That's sacralism. Um, Fritz Erba died in... The, the castle church, not in the castle church, but in the, in the uh, Vartburg Castle, um, because even Lutheranism was still a sacral society. The great fear that Luther had was that in the creation of a Lutheran church, which he did not want that name, by the way, but in the, in the Reformation, you would end up with societal collapse and anarchy. That was, that was his greatest fear, especially after the Peasants' Revolt of 1525. If you want to see a lecture on this, I did a lecture on this at the Sovereign Nations uh, thing in uh, in Washington in, what was that, 2018? I think it was November of 2018, I think, somewhere around. There. No, 2017, because we had just come back from, from, uh, from Germany. Yeah, so, um, so anyway, the, the point is, sacralism is this church-state connectedness uh, to where the laws of the state and laws of the church feed into one another. And it also means that everybody in one particular area all belongs to the same religion. This is, this is one, one aspect of the societies back then that we really struggle with. Because we've got a church in every corner, we've got religious freedom, the vast majority of our fellow citizens are not really religious at all, they don't attend services regularly any, anywhere. Um, and that's what we are accustomed to. But when you go back and you consider the Reformation, you consider the days of Wycliffe, for example, in the centuries before, everybody in the society is the same religion. There, there are no Buddhists here. Uh, there are no Muslims here. Um, your neighbor is a part of the same church you are. In fact, your neighbor, th this is important. You want sacralism? Here's sacralism. The baptismal roles of the church were the tax roles of the state. Which is why the Anabaptists were killed. 
Why did why did why is it that I've walked over the bridge in Zurich, Switzerland, where Anabaptists were given their third baptism? What's a third baptism? Well, they would have been baptized as a child because that's what everybody was. Then they came to the conclusion that wasn't a valid baptism, so they then were baptized, which was illegal. And then they're given a third baptism when they were executed by drowning from the bridge. Why would you execute someone for their view of baptism? Because they wouldn't baptize their children. If you don't baptize your children, they're not on the tax rolls of the state. The state takes a dim view, has always taken and will always take a dim view to any reduction in a tax base. Well, it would be considered treasonous in light of the taxes were needed to fight off the Muslims' hordes and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So, this is sacralism. This is, this is what Europe had experienced as, in, as long as anyone could remember. And, in fact, in light of certain forged documents such as the donation of Constantine, it was thought that this had, been, this had gone all the way back to that, that time period. It, it hadn't, but that was, the, that was the idea. So, what I was saying when I commented on Keller's uh, tweet uh, was that there is a context to anything that you are going to read from the mid-1550s. I said 1555. I should have said 1559. The Institutes were written and started in 1535. They went through various editions. You had the Latin editions. You had the French editions. 1559 was the final Latin edition. There was a French edition in the early 1560s. He died in 1564. Calvin did. So I should have said 1559. It would have been a better date. But I think I said 1555. I keep getting stuck with 1555 in my head. I've told the story before. My 1550 Stephanus down there. I kept calling it 1555 for many years. I, I just really like the year 1555 for some reason. Anyhow, um, but what I was pointing out is that if you're going to quote from Calvin, if you're going to quote from any of the Puritans, because um, even they later on are still in a primarily, it's breaking down. The Reformation started to break it down. Also brought in, eventually, the Enlightenment and humanism, too. Um, But if you're going to be quoting these people, then you need to realize that Calvin, especially, when he's talking about almsgiving and things like that, everybody in Geneva is a part of the church in Geneva. It is a sacral system. So your neighbor is your fellow church member. The distinction that we would have to deal with, A, given religious liberty, and then B, given the secular society in which we now live, and the fact that what we're dealing with with the social justice movement and with neo-Marxism and everything else, is there, there was, there's nothing in Calvin's context that even comes close to the worldview that we are now having to deal with. Trust me, <laughs> what, what was the big stain on Calvin's reputation in, in history? It's real easy. Miguel Cervantes, right? No one thought of it as a big stain in that day. Because Cervantes had already been condemned by the Inquisition. He escaped the night before his burning, jumping over the outhouse in his pajamas. And made a beeline for Geneva. And all of Europe viewed Servetus, Catholic or Protestant, 
as a heretic who had to be executed. It was a sacral society from north to south, east to west. That's the way it was. He was an anti-Trinitarian heretic. And so when you look at Calvin and you ask the question, what would Calvin have done with transgenders? What would have been the law of Geneva about a transgender? Execution. Right? No question. None. No one, no one could possibly argue that. I mean, they had a big thing over slit breaches, let alone transgenderism. So there is nothing in Calvin's worldview. He, he, there, there is nothing about equity and equality in the Marxist concept. God makes the rich and God makes the poor. There is all sorts of stuff appropriately in the Institutes, especially because he wrote the Institutes initially dedicated to whom? The king of France. Why? Because he's French. But he can't go back to France because it's illegal for him to be in France. So he talks about the necessity of caring for the poor and all the New Testament exhortations to, uh, to the fatherless and the widow and the book of James. And all of it is there as it should be. But it never, ever could have had in his mind any connection to the forced government redistribution of wealth based upon some kind of Marxist idea of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, or now based upon critical theory. That is not a part of Calvin's experience. That is not a part of the sacral world of the 16th century. And so to try to forge a link is invalid. So I simply pointed out, Dr. Keller is aware that what he's quoting from is from a sacral society, and that Calvin's primarily talking about, I mean, anybody in Europe at that time would be considered to be a Christian. They might be a Roman Catholic, but hey, as long as they wasn't trying to kill you, he was up for, Calvin wasn't running around trying to say, go kill all the Roman Catholics. That wasn't, that wasn't what he was about. So I tweeted something about, look, this is an important issue. You have to take sacralism into consideration. Well, <laughs> what came back? Well, first of all, I was really surprised. I think it's the first time he's ever responded to me. We've never met. Um, but his response... One, the, the last line of his response left me going, huh? He basically said, well, but what Calvin was saying was, was universal application. And besides that, London and Paris were not sacral something. I, I should have, uh, I probably have it saved somewhere in my files, but I, I didn't bring it up. And I was, so I'm pondering that going, what? And then I start reading down the responses. <laughs> um, the, the Tim Keller fanboy club showed up and all these memes. Oh, what a burn. 
Oh, wow, slam. Man, White's never going to be able to type again. All his fingers are broken. And, you know, just all this incredibly childish stuff. I'm just sitting there going, is this just due to 2020 or what? I don't get it. It was it was an amazing display. Amazing display. Especially because the tweet that they're all celebrating as this incredible refutation. Its last line was sadly fallacious. He literally said London and Paris were not sacral societies. Then what were they? Who was the king? I'm sorry. Who was the head of the church in London in 1559 when the last edition of the Institutes was was uh, was published? Well, it might have been a queen in England, um, but it was who's who's the head of the Anglican Church today? The Queen of England to this very day. Now, London is no longer a sacral city by any stretch of the imagination. But there were, I think, 11 Baptists either drowned or burned in London in 1611 when the King James was translated. That's a sacral society. Besides that, London is a city, not a nation. If you wanted to talk about that, you'd talk about Britain, England. And Paris? Well, that's France. You telling me France was not a sacral society at this point in time? Why couldn't Calvin go back home? Why had he had to flee from France? Because France is a sacral society and he's a heretic, which means he will be executed because it's a sacral society. The statement that Dr. Keller made was unbelievably false. I mean, I just don't know if he just doesn't know what sacralism is. Confuse it with another term. I don't know. I have no earthly idea. But what I do know is his followers will believe whatever he says, even when it's laughably wrong, and think it's a great slam in the process. Ah, amazing. I, I, that 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 was just. That's why I didn't. I I posted some stuff on my own feed. Didn't address it to Dr. Keller. But I posted some stuff on my own feed, knowing that. Once I had a chance to do the dividing line, I was going to go, okay, here's what sacralism is. Here's how sacralism functions. Here's why it was relevant to what I said. Here's why it's relevant to people who are trying to forge connections that should not be forged in light of the massive chasm in worldview that exists today. And this is why that last tweet from Dr. Keller was not even... I'm sorry, that's not going to get past the first year of church history on the undergraduate level. It was that bad. So I don't know what he was talking about, but his followers certainly thought it was awesome. Yes, sir? Put your oh. earpiece in. I have the actual quote in front of me, okay, and yes. it's actually, I think, worse than what you're remembering. Oh, well, I try to be nice. James, Calvin wrote the ecclesiastical ordinances for Geneva. He wrote his institutes for all Christians everywhere, Paris, London, everywhere. They were not sacral societies. So how about that? A, a distinction that that is just utterly fallacious. That's just wrong. I, I mean, um, yes, he obviously he wrote specific things for Geneva, but the institutes were meant for everyone in Geneva as well. And London and Paris 
were sacral societies because the nations that they were the capitals of were sacral societies. So I maybe he misunderstood the whole point. The whole point being that a a sacral society and a secular society are very different contexts as to how we are to relate to people outside the fellowship of the faith? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, or maybe, look, I've said this before, I'm not trying to start a war, but in 2015 or 14, may have been 13, Actually, it was earlier than that, now I think about it, uh, because uh, I was in Boulder. So that was real, so 20, 2011-ish, uh, maybe 2012. Anyway, I was in, I've told the story before. I was driving in Colorado, doing one of my bike rides. I had, but I wasn't riding the bike. I was actually driving a rental car at the time. And I, the local Christian station had uh, Dr. Keller on, and he had just put out a book on Christian suffering. And so, I don't know him very well. I've not read many of his books. In fact, I don't think I've ever read a Tim Keller book, to be pretty honest with you. Um, but this was an interesting subject, one that's relevant to stuff that I've written and stuff. So, I had a long drive, so I was listening. And the thought that crossed my mind after listening to that entire program was, that man's not a Westminster man. His answers to questions of suffering the sovereignty of God were not reformed. They just weren't. They, 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 were, they were not based upon the sovereignty of God. They were not based upon a decree of God. They were not based upon providence. They were very much based upon something else. And I am not the only person who has noted a consistent tendency in Dr. Keller to promote concepts that we would call social justice concepts uh, derived from neo-Marxism. And so maybe he interpreted my words from that kind of a concept. I don't know. But I can tell you one thing. What he said about church history was false. And I think I've demonstrated that. And so to all of you, quote-unquote, semi-reformed guys that were just rejoicing while wow, it was embarrassing. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't, I may have actually, you know what? I did take some screen caps so I could name some names. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I would just su suggest that if you're, if you're going to do the victory dance type thing, you might, you might want to remember that very famous video uh, that is, Available, it's probably available as a GIF, GIF, whatever you call it these days, where uh, the guy's taking a penalty shot in, in uh, football or soccer, as we call it here in the United States. But the guy blocks it up, and the goalie thinks, that's it. I, I did it. We won the game. And so he starts celebrating and running toward the sideline. He had just blocked the ball straight up. But it was spinning. And so when it came back down, it just, boom, right into the goal. And he lost. You might want to wait. It sort of, was it Leon Lett? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't Leon. You, those guys were Leon Letting all over Twitter. <laughs> so you just. There goes the 
Yep, 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 yep. So, <laughs> yep, there you go. All right, anyway, wow. Uh, we went for, what, an hour and 45 minutes there? Something along those lines? Yep, there you go. There you go. So, we had some stuff to catch up on. Uh, anyways, so, um, just to let you know, um, we have agreement uh, from Dr. Riddle, Jeffrey Riddle, uh, for he and I to debate. And, you know, Dr. Riddle had said it'd be wonderful to do this in person. It would be. It would have been. Um, I traveled last weekend. Well, not, not this past weekend, the weekend before that. It stunk. And it's not just because I had a bad travel day, because I did, and got home, what, seven, eight hours after I was supposed to, and um, almost ended up spending the night on the floor in DFW um, and stuff like that. But it was the fact that it was in the land of the zombies. The face-masked I, d- I do not know how much traveling I'm going to do, to be honest with you, um, in the future, because I believe the face mask mandates will remain in place permanently in the future. I believe that because the logic behind it, which is not logic at all, but the logic behind it demands it. There are infectious diseases. There have always been infectious diseases on every aircraft that has ever flown that are far more destructive than COVID-19 that have far higher death rates than COVID-19. So, logically, we will always have to wear face masks on aircraft. I'm not doing it. It's, it's damaging to your, to your health, um, and I'm not, I'm not going to do it. So, I'm not sure how much traveling I'm doing. I would love to do this in person, but these days, um, seriously, by the way, before you hit that button, I have not... I have not spoken to Rich about this. This scares Rich to death when I do something like this. But I have been thinking. I have been thinking. And that could be dangerous. Um, But back before jet aircraft, people traveled around. And they did motor tours. And I'm just wondering, no, I didn't mention this part. I'm just wondering if there's anybody in our audience that has been sitting there going, you know, I've got this thing. I'm not using this thing. But man, trying to sell this thing's a pain. If we had a really usable RV, that's something that I could see doing touring in to be honest with you. Um, And I like being at the churches, like the church I was at a week ago Sunday might have had 50 people at it. I like doing that. I've always liked doing that. Um, And so I I could see the possibility and it would be take a lot of work to do it, but arranging a road trip with a central debate in the middle of it, uh, in person, and then stopping at, in various states, churches, special meetings, 
on special topics along the way on the way back. And so maybe there might be somebody out there who's got, you know, we've got this RV. It turned out we couldn't use it the way we wanted to. It actually, you know, really would have the miles in it to be able to to do what you're talking about. That that would be great to have you use it to travel around and do your t- that type of stuff. And so that would be a possibility. So I didn't mention... Oh, Rich is laughing the other room. I, I'm just waiting for uh, Reformed memes to get their hands on this idea. Yes, the... Uh, it's going to look something Jed Clampish. Uh, Clampish. Well, there's, there's going to be cartoons of my head sticking out of an RV, you know, we'll, we'll debate for gas and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I'm, something I'm, I'm like sure that, yeah. It's, uh-huh. I yeah, it's, so. it, it's coming. It's coming. No, no two ways about it. But I'll throw that out there because... Um, I do like meeting with folks. The last, you know, when I went to Arkansas, it was so neat talking to people again after the various presentations, like at the seminary and 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 uh, the two churches I was at and things like that. And um, you know, people talking about how they were brought out of this false teaching and that false teaching through the ministry and and things. And it it, it is it's great to to get to do that once in a while. Uh, but if I had an RV, here's the other advantage. If I had an RV, I can always stick my bike in the RV. And that means I can... Now, you know, one last thing. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah, no roadies. No, no, no. No, it's not a caravan. We're not going to have... Yeah, well, Kelly could be my roadie, yeah. If she liked doing that thing. We'll see. Anyway, um, so so one other thing. That just, this would be funny. This is, this would... Do you know what a... Uh, Pack tour is PAC Pack tour Pacific Atlantic Coast tour. Um, a bucket list idea for me. I'd love to do a pack tour. Look it up. It's where you ride your bike from California to Massachusetts. Kelly could follow me in the RV. Yeah, I suppose. But this is actually something where there's an actual group that. Takes care of everything for you. All you've got to do is ride your bike. Um, but I, you know, the thought that I've had—that's not easy to do. It's about 110 miles per day for over a month. So you've got to—that—that's the only thing you're doing, basically. And obviously, I'd have to—we'd have to find some way for me to do reports and stuff like that. But the thought I've had. We've never done anything like this, but that'd be an incredible fundraiser. We've never done anything like that before. It would give me real motivation because that's tough. That's really, really hard. But it'd be sort of fun to do live updates and uh, you'd know exactly what the course is going to be. So you could have meetups with folks. Not that I would be overly energetic, uh, but you could have meetups with folks along the way, and it, it would be it would be really. We've got our 40th anniversary coming up. We got to do something. So, so you'd maximize KOA. You what? KOA campgrounds. Not on not on you the know, Pacific Atlantic just, Coast just thing. Bring everybody in and just start. You know. <laughs> no, whatever the Pacific Atlantic Coast thing is, is that they they sort of get to determine that stuff. But the, the point is, uh, doing something huge like that and. Maybe as a celebration of, you know, we didn't do it. We forgot last week 
the 30th anniversary of my first debate. We forgot it. We just based it. I mean, we are the world's worst promoters. It's horrible. Other people would have had hats and swag and and coffee cups. I, I, and think, we did I think we're going to have to have Josh do a T-shirt that that has the Cairo on it, and at the bottom this is the world's worst promoters. World worst world worst marketers. We world, really are. world's worst it's, marketers. It, it just, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> but yeah, don't you remember when people used to do fundraisers where you'd get three three cents per mile or something like that? Well, three cents per mile. Would be what ninety bucks or nine hundred ninety? I think ninety bucks. Uh, it's over three thousand miles across the across the U.S. So you know, who knows? Maybe that's maybe that's something to do. I'll have to have to, have to think about that. That'd be sort of fun. That'd be sort of fun. But then you you know your idea might work too. Just <coughs> have Kelly follow me in the RV all day. Because <laughs> I mean, I, I it'd be easy to find what routes they use. Uh, that 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 would be very easily done, and you can just sort of. Decide how far he wanted to go, and yeah, that'd, that'd be interesting. That'd be interesting. Anyways, thanks for watching the program today. Lord willing, we will be back on Thursday. We'll see you then. God bless.